Hello, Compact Nation listeners. Just a quick note about today's bonus episode. You will hear legal matters discussed, and we just wanted to clarify that nothing you will hear on today's podcast constitutes legal advice. Okay, here we go with the podcast. Welcome to a special bonus edition of the Compact Nation podcast. I am Andrew Seligson, president of Campus Compact, and I am here with Nancy Thomas. Nancy, for alert Compact Nation podcast listeners, you will remember that Nancy has been a guest previously on the podcast. She is director of the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education at Tisch College, Tufts University. Uh, Nancy is also a reformed lawyer, and that will be relevant to our conversation today. Uh, And so first of all, welcome, Nancy. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So let me explain why we're doing a special bonus edition of the Compact Nation podcast. I love that I'm a bonus. It's a, you are a bonus. You're a bonus in many ways, and this is one of those ways. Uh, there was an interesting uh, decision by the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, in a case called Pompeo versus Board of Regents of the University of New Mexico, and we'll tell you all about that case. And uh, Nancy, you thought that there were some really interesting implications for some of the questions about the relationship between democracy and higher education that you and I always talk about, that your work is framed by, that our work at Campus Compact is framed by, that our listeners are are working on daily. And so we thought it would be interesting to kind of dig into that case and talk a little bit about its implications today. So that's where we're headed. Uh, Again, Nancy as a reform lawyer, I have a a secret history as um, I used to teach constitutional law at the undergraduate level. So, uh, you know, for about 10 years of my life, I spent much of my time reading cases and uh, doing that kind of stuff. So we're we're getting those those rusty bolts uh, kind of oiled (laughs) up and and back in shape. Uh, So why don't we do this? It turns out that this case among other things, concerns, questions about free speech rights for students, but also the the concept of academic freedom and the limits of that concept for the faculty role. So Nancy, can you just give us a little bit of a background on really where the concept of academic freedom comes from and why it might be relevant to a constitutional discussion since those words don't appear in the U.S. Constitution anywhere? Right. Well, they sure don't. Uh, And one reason I'm excited about this case is because I think it clarifies a lot of things that have been made pretty murky about many of the cases so far. Uh, One one of the questions is sort of what is academic freedom? And we know that it is basically two things. It's a professional standard, and there it has some roots in basic contract or employment law, but it's also a legal concept uh, rooted in the First Amendment. So as a professional standard, it dates back to the 19th century when uh, there were many debates over how to create optimal learning conditions for students. In 1940, the AAUP passed the Statement of Principles on Academic Freedom and Tenure, uh, and that's the American Association of University Professors, by the way, and developed all sorts of language on the protection of political viewpoints of faculty that offered guidance to faculty on how to use controversial teaching materials. It had recommendations for due process standards. And that statement or versions of it is often found in faculty handbooks or incorporated uh, by reference in those handbooks. And in that sense, it has become a national standard. 
But as a legal concept rooted in the First Amendment, it gets pretty confusing. So back after the McCarthy, or really during the McCarthy era in the 1950s, the United States Supreme Court started identifying academic freedom. As you say, it's not written out in in the uh, Bill of Rights. We will not find that language. But they identified four essential freedoms of the university. And that is to determine for itself on academic grounds who may teach, whom, who may be taught, how it shall be taught, and who may be admitted to study. And so academic freedom in some respects is, is a right of the university itself. And the idea behind academic freedom is that Colleges and universities are the nation's think tank. It is the place where we should have uh, the robust exchange of ideas that lead to the discovery of new ideas and the truth, and that it should be a marketplace of ideas. And there are a couple of things that sort of have framed that, and, and one is that courts often give deference to institutions making educational decisions, sort of the daily operations of an institution. And as long as those operations don't violate student rights, they get upheld by the courts. Well, who's on the front line? Faculty. And so in that way, the First Amendment protects faculty from interference by government. Bear in mind that the First Amendment only applies to government actors, not private institutions although it's a normative value, and I've yet to find a private institution that doesn't value academic freedom. Um, and it protects the right of faculty and, and First Amendment expression rights for students to talk about all sorts of things in all sorts of places. Um, the challenge today is that students are often claiming that faculty are quashing their First Amendment rights to free expression. And it is true that students don't abandon their rights when they walk on campus. And again, back to the early cases, it's the whole design of higher education is to provide students with this opportunity for free inquiry and study as part of their learning process. But that right is not absolute. And there are certain things that uh, are limited about out in public life around free speech, things that I think most people have heard about, such as you can't say fighting words, you can't incite a riot, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, some obscenity, some pornography, um, defamation. There are some reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. Um, it's when the students' rights conflict with academic freedom that the courts step in. So it, it happens that you and I were recently in a meeting with a group of college presidents, and I've been involved in some very similar conversations in other settings where right now a lot of people in academia are expressing a lot of fear about the possibility of kind of tripping some kind of wire, you know, stepping across a line, inciting a backlash, whether it's based in some legal challenge or just uh, sort of creating a political firestorm that would hurt them or their university. And so I think it's in, in that context that this case really emerges as an interesting topic. So let's really dig in so our, our listeners have an understanding of the what happened and, and what kind of legal questions emerged from it before we get to how the court resolved it. And 
you know, it's a it's a 28-page opinion. We won't go through all the details, but can you just give a basic sense, the sort of law school thing of like, what are the facts of the case? What, what happened that created this conflict? Right, right. So as you noted, the case is called Pompeo versus Board of Regents of the University of North um, New Mexico, and this ruling came out on March 28th, so just a couple of weeks ago. The case involved a student, Pompeo, who enrolled in 2012 in a sort of upper-level course called Images of Women from Icons to Iconoclasts. The course syllabus was fairly well laid out. Um, It warned that students should expect controversy, and I love what the professor put in there. Students should expect incendiary classroom discussions. We, uh, we all hope for those when we we're teaching a class. We all hope for those. Um, the syllabus also stated that students would be expected to act with respect and care for everybody. And again, this professor, you got to love her, everybody's marvelously complex subjectivities. Uh, students were required to complete papers on assignments. And the pedagogical goals for the course, again, very well laid out in in the syllabus, were that students needed to learn to write critically and to write analytic papers, to think critically, and, quote, to discern critical argument from opinions and polemics. Uh, Students were advised that they might be required, for example, to rewrite papers that did not satisfy these requirements. So the professor assigned a class called Desert Hearts, uh, nineteen eighty. Uh, assigned a film. I'm sorry. So the professor assigned a film, a 1985 film called Desert Hearts, about a lesbian romance, and required the students to write an analytic paper about the film. This student's paper included very graphic statements criticizing lesbians and lesbianism. Uh, for example... She referred to lesbians as barren uh, and to the, fil- to the film itself as perverse in its desire and attempt to reverse the natural roles of men and women. And the paper included very little critique of the film as a film. Uh, the professor talked to her about it and asked a lot of probing questions and wrote these in the margins as well, such as why is attraction to the same sex Perverse. This is a very strong statement, the professor said, that needs critical backup. Otherwise, it's just inflammatory. The student returned to the class, but the but in the first class after the paper was returned, the professor found her to be uh, pretty disruptive and disrespectful. Both of them kind of went up the ladder. <laughs> so the professor went up to the department chair looking for help on the classroom situation, and the student went up the ladder to get help on being able to submit the paper that she felt she, sh- she was entitled to submit under her free speech rights. Um, they were not able to work out the details, and eventually the student quit the class, but she also left the university and sued for a violation of her First Amendment rights. Okay, so that's kind of where, where we get to what the, the legal issue is, her claim that her her own free speech was violated by not having her paper accepted because of its content, as you described. Uh, so how did the university 
or, or the professor, how, how, well, I guess the university, how did the university defend itself against that argument? Well, they did what any good self-respecting university does, and that is they went out and hired a university attorney. Yeah. Good <laughs> um, first step. That's right. The Note first to step. listeners, if, right. if sued. That's right. And there are some legal complexities about what happened at the lower court level. There was a motion to enjoin, which means we want to get rid of this case without even entertaining the merits. Um, that was denied, but then this, a motion for summary judgment, meaning we can decide just based on these papers, was granted, and um, it was the motion for summary judgment that the plaintiff then appealed to the appellate court. Um, this is a small court, three judge, three justices. They only need a quorum to decide. They had two present, so the two justices heard oral arguments and um, those were taped, and the third justice listened to the tapes, but did not participate in the rendering of the decision. So that's sort of the technical background of it. Um, it, it might be, instead of saying, you know, what did the university, how, how did it defend itself, it might be sort of fun to track a little bit of the opinion, because... It's a little. It's kind of a crazy opinion in some ways. Okay, it's, so so walk us through. Walk yeah, us through. Yeah, it's it's almost like the judges were talking. To, yeah, buts. There were a lot of right, yeah, buts. Right. <laughs> okay. It's a complicated case. All right, and they do a really masterful job identifying the key co- cases that are precedent. So so here's one thing, for example, that the court said. On the one hand. Faculty need to encourage students to inquire freely and to create these conditions for the robust exchange of ideas. And they may not indoctrinate. Okay, so I already said those things. Yeah, but, sort of the other way, on the other hand, courts should not interfere with the daily operation of schools. Okay, so then what they said is the only thing, the only they only interfere when the faculty member's conduct infringes on a student's rights, which is, of course, in this case. Of course, (laughs) again, back, yet professors may restrict speech for pedagogical purposes. So it's the right of faculty members to sort of set the standards, to draw lines, to make distinctions. If a limitation to a student's free speech has no valid educational purpose, then the courts will intervene on, uh, in favor of the student. But they give the, the faculty members a pretty, pretty wide um, range within to operate. And um, the issue comes down to then what we call viewpoint discrimination. So what one, one thing that faculty cannot do is that they cannot restrict speech of a student as a pretext for viewpoint discrimination. Um, I love the courts. They called it an impermissible ulterior motive. But many of us find we have impermissible ulterior motives, but it doesn't always violate the law. Exactly, exactly. Okay, but not all viewpoints, of course, are protected. It's the viewpoints that are related to sort of uh, historically marginalized groups, such as Um, viewpoints relating to race, gender, economic class, religion, and something called political persuasion. 
which is a very murky category that I have seen very little written about. So that's one of the exciting things about this case is that it uh, shed some light on this question of political persuasion. Interestingly, Pompeo did not argue that her speech was religious speech, which it sounds to me a little bit, you know. Could have been. I mean, it could have been. I think from what's quoted, it, she doesn't ground it in any kind of religious basis. Somebody might have a religious basis for those views, but she doesn't say she did, and it's yeah. not obvious in the in the work that's quoted in the opinion. That's right. So someone was suggesting, I think, coaching her probably to go after political persuasion as a as a as a perspective, and I'm not sure why that would be, but it was definitely her claim that it was the politi- her political viewpoint to which the professor was objecting. Um, th- the fun thing about this is the court in footnote two spends half a page talking about what political persuasion is. And this is the part that I think is really important. The court is saying that political persuasion refers to partisan affiliation. Meaning, essentially, you can't discriminate against a student based on their partisan affiliation. But other forms of political views or something that could be represented as a political view that maybe isn't consistent with what students are learning in the course, that you can actually negatively judge as a professor, and that's legitimate. Right. I think that's exactly right. So you can't... You know, your viewpoint in favor of a particular candidate or in favor of a particular uh, political party would be protected viewpoint, uh, a protected political viewpoint. But frankly, political correctness is not. Right. So, I mean, right. So if you discriminate against a student because they say, I'm for Hillary Clinton, here are the reasons why. If the you can't discriminate against them because they're for Hillary Clinton, but the kinds of reasons they might cite, you might actually it might be okay to come down on those if they weren't linked to the support for a particular candidate. That's right. That's right. I, you know, it's just it's just the court literally comes out and says that the professor can tackle politically charged topics. And in doing so, that does not give rise to viewpoint. And, and doesn't have to be 100% neutral in doing so. That's right. That's right. And not, not only that, the professor doesn't have to be perfect about it, which is another interesting part of this ruling is they're not going to say something like, oh, this is the, the least restrictive that the professor could have been. Right, which is a type of thing courts say in a lot of situations. But here they're basically saying, actually, it's the role of the professor to do the teaching. And as long as they aren't in one of these protected zones where you can't discriminate, then if they put a a thumb on the scale toward a particular point of view, that's part of what it means to be a teacher. Right. Well, and in fact, that was probably the biggest hook for the court is that educators need to be entrusted with making decisions that require judgments based on viewpoints, and that that is the that is the case right there. Um, it, it was just a terrific way to to clarify what a faculty member can and cannot do. Now, bear in mind that the nice thing about this particular case is all the facts, the background facts, were laid out pretty well. The faculty member had set up a really strong syllabus with with warnings and with uh, 
clear, clear pedagogical goals that were then used as the basis for the critique of the student's paper. So the stars aligned, but they aligned because the faculty member had been quite careful. That was, you know, I will say that was one of the things that was interesting to me, given I, I, I've heard a lot of people lament, and sometimes I might have heard myself lament, the um, sort of the bureaucratization of the syllabus, right? The way syllabi have grown because we put more and more uh, qualifiers and legalistic language and whatever. But it was very interesting to see the court specifically cite the text in the syllabus that the professor had written, and that really protected the professor. I think, I mean, it's hard to know, but without that language in there, this may have gone a different way, it seemed like, because it would have been after, or it would have seemed after the fact, the sort of defenses that the professor was offering. Yeah, I'm not sure it would have gone the other way because I still think that the professor had uh, pedagogical goals that made sense. You know, when you write an analytic paper, it's got to be about the film. It shouldn't be about the subject of the film and your opinions about that. And and it is within a professor's right, syllabus or no syllabus, to insist on statements and that are backed up by evidence and facts. You know, un, unbacked up opinions are not, they're just not as, you know, the professors have a pretty broad reign, I think, to do what they want to do with that, syllabus or no syllabus. It certainly helped, though, and one of the, one of the things that the court talked about was an older case called Axon Flynn, which was a really well-known case involving a student who uh, uh, was uh, a Mormon, and she objected to having to perform a play in an acting class because it had swear words in it. And the background that came out as a result of the trial demonstrated a large amount of animosity by the professor toward the student. They, they re, were very dismissive both of her uh, perspective on religion and the fact that she was raising it. it. They said things like, well, other Mormon students don't object to this. So so what faculty... Faculty really cannot disparage students. They cannot be demeaning under any circumstances. But... Certainly having a good syllabus, having clear pedagogical uh, goals, and being respectful, and uh, just, for example, the fact that the professor was willing to allow the student to rewrite the paper was important. Now, she had said that in the syllabus. She wasn't giving this this student anything special, but just, just all of the things that the professor did in this case aligned well, and frankly, I don't think they're all that burdensome. So, you know, from a legal standpoint, this was a decision of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals that governs the southwestern states that are in the Tenth Circuit and may provide guidance to other federal circuits, and even potentially the Supreme Court were a case like this to go there. So that's kind of the legal outcome is, you know, the, the professor's position carried the day, and that's the standard now in that circuit, and again, has some relevance beyond that. What else do you see? What matters about this case for those of us thinking about civic and democratic education on college campuses? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's impressive that the court wrote 28 pages and went through a very clear step-by-step articulation of academic freedom. So I think it is a case that is likely to be cited by many circuits, not just the Tenth Circuit. Um, It's not binding law to the other circuits, but they do give deference to each other. They trust each other in a lot of cases. Or if they don't want to give deference, they try to distinguish the facts. Um, This case could go up to the Supreme Court. Um, it, It is very possible that the plaintiff is going to appeal. The court may or may not take the case. You just you just never know. Um, so certainly, if it be if it goes up to the Supreme Court, then it will become, however the decision goes, it will become binding to all circuits and all parts of the country. But I think that given the caution and uh, clear articulation of this court in this decision, it's likely to be very important. So that, you know, the, you know as, as we go back to thinking about sort of the fear that I was mentioning earlier on, that you're suggesting, again, that we can't know the outcome if it goes to the Supreme Court. We don't know exactly how other circuits will act, but that people who are worried about potential legal consequences, lawsuits, et cetera, when they are in good faith, treating students with respect, but doing so in a way that is... That, that may involve some kind of a viewpoint, a substantive viewpoint that emerges in their teaching, you're saying people can rest a little bit easier, and there's some good guidance here about being really clear in your syllabus, that, that helps, and there's the ethical principle about treating your students respectfully and not disparaging them on the basis of a set of classifications, but you shouldn't be disparaging them anyway, uh, and that basically you can go near some, some hotter uh, territory and, and not be kind of terrified that you might get yourself in legal trouble. Yeah, the court literally used the terms politically charged. Yeah. And Things that are politically charged are fair game, and professors shouldn't shy away from that. Um, and, you know, one line in the, in the case is that criticizing a student's paper, even in harsh terms... If it's related to pedagogical goals of encouraging critical analysis or avoiding unsupported generalizations or maintaining a focus in, a, in an assignment, that's a, that's a pretty clear test right there. And if I think that if faculty stay within those parameters, they're on pretty safe ground. Excellent. Well, Nancy, thank you very much for joining us on this bonus edition of the Compact Nation podcast. Uh, The bonus was all mine. (laughs) And to our (laughs) listeners, I hope you uh, enjoyed the conversation and maybe learned something uh, about this case and, you know, uh, might maybe tickled your fancy. We will put a link to the opinion on the show page. So if you want to Uh, dig in in more detail. It is a really interesting opinion, and it's always interesting to me to see a court kind of dig into the world of higher education, because for those of us who work in it every day, uh, it's just interesting to see how it looks from the outside, I think. So again, Nancy, thank you very much, and uh, we'll be back with a complete edition of the Compact Nation podcast next month. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Compact Nation is produced by Nabal Mahdi at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, on behalf of Campus Compact and its network of 1,100 colleges and universities across the United States. To learn more about Campus Compact, 
Check it out online at compact.org.